Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 11, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. All right, let's rewind the clock. Both of us have kids. Yeah. And... Uh, but let's go back to that time when we were sort of planning on getting pregnant. Uh, can we go a little bit further? Yeah, we, yeah I wish <laughs> we was, could go further. That was the good time. It was, it was well, for, for me, I will say it was a stressful period. It was. Uh, but there's now technology available that at least wasn't uh, available in the same way it was back then. You can get a whole genome sequence now. Now, that's not sort of available consumer, in a consumer way. It's still pretty expensive, but it can be done. With the idea of if you get a whole genome sequence, you can get a any sort of medically relevant information on rare diseases or any sort of risks up front. And then you can also get access to sort of long-term risk. So a new study came out from Sue Richards, who's at Oregon Health Sciences University, that was in the American Journal of Human Genetics that screened uh, 131 women and their partners and a total of about 200 people participated and had their whole genome sequenced. And they were given the information. And first they told them any sort of life-threatening, like very actionable information was immediately given to the to the people. Like you're you have, you know, a BRCA Hunting, positive. Yeah. Or, or Huntington's disease. Yeah, you know, it. something like yeah. you know, pretty important. But then they were given a choice. Now there's some long-term things like you have a you have a variant that might lead you to a higher risk for Parkinson's later in mm-hmm. life, and they're given a choice whether they wanted that information or not. Not hmm. surprisingly, over ninety percent said, "Give me the information." Right? I that would, is surprising to me. I don't know really? that I would want it. Yeah. Uh, well, you're you might be a, <laughs> a better person than I, but I I would want that information, even though it's not anything I can do with it, and. I, I think that's how most people would think, yep. given that choice. But here's where it starts to get interesting. So this is better than the 23andMe test, which only tests for a few variants. This was looking at 700 variants across the whole genome. And so of those 700 sort of variants um, that they were sort of looking at, about 3 to 5% of the group came out with information that was actually actionable, like hmm. medically actionable. So you say, hey, 3 to 5%, that's not bad. But that's a terrible return in in a clinical medical situation. Yeah, um, so for like an you know, out of one hundred and thirty people, like six of them maybe yeah. <laughs> did something about the results. Okay, exactly. But the rest was all of that probabilistic information of like you have a higher risk for this. And I think what's interesting about this, this is all done in the in the pre pregnancy screen, and this is what we we talked about in a in a previous episode with Hank Greeley, like. 
if you had access to this information, would it change your behavior heading into a pregnancy and how you raise your kids? Or even if I want to have a kid, given certain probabilities. And that's what they were really poking at. And uh, there's this really great interview they did with the the study author, which comes down to like, well, do you recommend this? Like if this was available, which it's not consumer available, but if this was available, would you do it? And so before I tell you what she said, would you do it? Huh. You know, I, I've, I've like, I think I've changed my tune a little bit on getting this kind of information because I feel like, you know, it, I, there's always a chance that you could do it later on in life when you when it is actionable. And if it isn't actionable, I just don't see the point of worrying about it. Yeah. And I actually I think my mind says, uh, no, don't get the test results because they're not mature at this point. Like we're in this like really gray space with what these variants actually mean. And there's so many other factors that lead to to this. So even if I'm one of like, uh, and in this case, in this study, like 78% of the people came out with something. But that's the thing. It's not going to be good news, right? It's not going to no. be like you have the gene to become a, you know, great athlete. Yeah, or you have the, the next Superman Mozart, gene. Yeah, right? No. no, it's going to be something bad. Uh, for sure. And, uh, but I think my heart would say, give me the information because I am yeah. a give me the information type guy. Like I want more, more data equals better. Mm-hmm. And, but the studies author agrees with you. It's like the... Essentially, like these results aren't cooked in to the point where we can say anything about them meaningfully. So why provide them the information? And uh, and here's the quote, just because you can do more, should you do more? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, isn't this the whole argument for why 23andMe had to stop? You know, because I know that the FDA was just like, look, you're giving them information that we don't know what the consequences of that is. But I think that tension between the the patients wanting more information mm-hmm. And having the information be uh, to a point, and I don't know what that point is. Mm-hmm. It's not like this like clear line uh, that exists. A point where we, we all, uh, that scientists and, and doctors feel confident that this information is meaningful. Mm-hmm. That tension is still going to be played out. So even when they sequence the whole genome, that still comes to play. Yeah, no, I, I surprised my doctor recently when, um, you know, he was recommending some tests and I sort of said to him, well, what consequences would the results say? And he said, well, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. And I said that I don't want to take the test. And Good he was surprised because I think that the, most of his patients are like, you know, I want to take that. Whereas I'm like, I'm like, I don't want to, you know, my health care insurance isn't that great. I didn't want to pay $1,500 for a test that wasn't going to. Well, there you I go. Wasn't gonna that helped. On. So that helped. So um, we're actually going to talk about a lot of ethical issues on this up to date. Um, I've got two stories, one leading out of the other uh, that both sort of you know, start out with or end up with ethical questions. So the first one is, do you remember the trolley problem? Oh, sure. Right. So the idea is that uh, for those of you who, who don't remember, uh, it's it's, you know, the, the, it's a it's an ethical dilemma where you're you're standing next to a track and there's a trolley that's coming and there are five people tied to the track that the trolley is going to hit unless you do something about it. So you could pull the switch and switch the tracks. And that would mean that, you know, you'd actually kill only one person because on the other track, there's only one person tied up. So the question is, what do you do? Yeah, and this is immortalized very visually in an episode of The Good Place last season, oh, okay. in, in, like the best way possible. Um, I, I, 
I'd like to think that I would make the choice and kill the one person. Yeah, I mean, and, and I actually think that um, in when when we get to this kind of a problem in virtual reality, we're actually going to have a lot of data on that. But Jennifer Willette in her Facebook feed pointed me to an article in New Scientist that described a study that I actually went back and read in Psych Science. Uh, so you can't eat New Scientist is embargoed um, or you have to pay for the article, but you can actually get the original paper for free uh, from Psych Science. And what they did is they actually kind of took a did a did a real life version of the trolley problem, but instead of using humans, which you could argue maybe is less slightly less ethical, they used mice. So <laughs> that's still kind of unethical. I mean, no, they did not tie mice to a track and oh. set a trolley down. What they did is they told you uh, that you know there was going to be there was a big counter that uh, as a participant in the in the experiment you would watch countdown like twenty seconds or something like that, and uh, the experimenter told you when that counter reaches zero, um, those five mice that you see in the cage in front of you are going to get a non lethal but very annoying electrical shock. Um, what you can do is press this button and the mouse in the cage uh, next to those mice will get the shock, but those five mice won't get the shock. So what would you do in that situation? Would you push the button? Uh, again, I think I would push the button more often than not. And I mean, the whole point of this trolley problem isn't about that there is a solution to this. It's about the experiment around the ethics. Right. And it, and it's sort of it's about your philosophy. So you can you know, you can be a consequent consequentialist consequ I don't even consequentialist. You can be a consequentialist. Wow, I said that right. Uh, in which you say, no, what matters most are the consequences. So I want to minimize damage. So I'm going to do something in order to minimize the damage. And that's the ethical thing to do. Or you can be a deontologist like Kant, which is that if you actually take a action to harm somebody, that is immoral. So because by pushing the button, you are harming the one mouse, uh, which means that doing nothing is the more moral choice. Right? This is why I don't read Immanuel Kant. <laughs> okay, so that's the argument. Um, and in the hypothetical situation, which, you know, is probably what we've all been familiar with. So, you know, the researcher said, imagine this scenario, you've got these five mice in this one cage, and you've got this one mouse in the other cage, you know, would you push the button? 66% of the people said that they would push the button. So there's still, you know, a big proportion of people who said they would not push the button. Now, what do you think happened when they were actually put in the situation where they could see the mice and the button was in front of them. Oh, I think a lot less people would push the button because now the consequences are you have to come face to face with the consequences. Yeah, very logical thing and wrong. What? <laughs> yeah. So when faced with those cute five little mice, 84% of the people pushed the button and, you know, then the clock went to zero and nothing happened. <laughs> Of course. So I mean, no mice were harmed in the making of this experiment, um, but uh, or at least they weren't shocked. Uh, so, but but yes, twice as many people hypothetically said that they would not push the button than actually would not push the button. So if you are a consequentialist, consequence, <laughs> consequentialist, consequentialist. Anyway, if you believe in consequences. <laughs> And that's how you make your uh, moral decisions, then that's good news, right? Because it means that most people will behave in a way that you think is moral. So that gets me to the next uh, uh, sort of study that I that that this made me think of, which comes from Marin McKenna. So this was the, I had a really great you know week on social media. Uh, Marin McKenna wrote an article uh, for Wired.com 
where she described a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, about kids in Africa. So in a, in a few African countries, um, there are obviously very high infant or child mortality rates. Uh, and in these countries, uh, the, uh, the scientists in this particular study uh, uh, distributed or uh, gave kids azithromycin, an antibiotic, a um, couple times a year, uh, prophylactically. So these kids were not mm. sick. Um, but there are some bacterial infections that are common in these countries that kill a lot of kids every year. And in doing so, they reduced the childhood mortality rate in these places, affecting 200,000 children by, you know, from 13 to 18 percent. Oh, that's okay? pretty significant. That's pretty significant. And that's a lot of kids whose lives have been saved. But as Marin points out, there's a catch-22. Antibiotic resistance? Yep. So, Because what you're doing, essentially, is you're prescribing antibiotics to a lot of people without an immediate cause. So this is kind of like a trolley problem, right? Because you're saving the kids uh, who normally would have died from these bacterial infections if you didn't prophylactically give them antibiotics, but potentially harming a much larger group of people by creating more antibiotic resistance. Now there's a now we're in an interesting ethical dilemma because it, it's it's not the it's not the straight trolley problem uh, no. anymore because there is a little bit of of um, belief. At least here's how I think about it. Okay, saving those lives, that's certainly a moral thing to do. But you're also unlocking the potential of saving those lives. Like more people in the world, more likelihood that there's greater benefit brought to the world from those people, including the fact that we will have a greater likelihood of coming up with new solutions to antibiotic resistance down the mm -hmm. road. Uh, I know there's a lot of ifs and logical mm -hmm. jumps I make there, but that's one way I think about it that allows me to collapse the sort of immediate need versus guarding against the uh, the midterm, short-term harm mm -hmm. that comes with the growing resistance. How do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, that's how I think about it. And I also think about, you know, in, in for the argument for, hey, no, we should not do this and save these kids, I think in, in, a, in some ways kind of comes down on some racial lines, right? Because in the West, yes, we shouldn't go to our doctors and get antibiotics, but we do. Uh, and, you know, even though that's a practice that you know, shouldn't happen, we are it's still available to us. So to remove that availability uh, in, a, in a place where, you know, these kids really have no other option and there are much dire consequences. I mean, you know, most kids in the U.S. are not going to die from the common cold, even though that's what a lot of antibiotics get prescribed for. These kids uh, in Africa will die from things like trachoma and these other bacterial infections, or they can die from them. So, you know, I think that, you know, if we if we sort of sit around and say, no, 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 we need to not do that in order to, you know, prevent the greater good, then we need to enforce really strict rules about when antibiotics are used in the West as well. Ugh. I want I would say, give them the antibiotics. Yeah, like, I, I mean, mean, I think for now that that seems to be because that number that you said, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to reduce it by one to 2%, which is a huge number yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, this when is you're a pretty drastic jump. Yeah, I mean, not two, it's not two hundred thousand deaths, but you know, the the rate there is still going to be high. And 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 yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the scientists when they started the study thought, you know, we would be really lucky if we got a five to ten percent rate. But you know, in Niger, they got an eighteen percent reduction in you know, and in, in across all of the other countries, it was like thirteen point five or something like that. We're so, talking about tens of thousands of kids. Yeah, now. it's a lot of kids. 
So that's it for up to date. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode and stay tuned for our full episode that will uh, drop on Monday where we will be talking to Dana Staff about the history of cephalopods. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.